Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Well, good morning, everybody. Thanks for braving the rain uh, and foul May weather uh, to come to Heritage. As my colleague said, I'm Cully Stimson. I'm the deputy director of the Edwin Meese Center for Legal and Judicial Studies, where I also serve as a senior legal fellow. Uh, and we're delighted uh, that you have joined us for our second panel event in our two-year-long series covering the problematic policies of progressive prosecutors, whom we call rogue prosecutors. The American prosecutor occupies a unique role among lawyers. The prosecutor has a higher duty than other attorneys. Her duty is to seek justice, not simply to obtain convictions. As the American Bar Association notes, and I quote, the prosecutor should seek to protect the innocent and convict the guilty, consider the interests of victims and witnesses, and respect the constitutional and legal rights of all persons, including suspects and defendants, unquote. Needless to say, prosecutors play a vital and indispensable role in the fair and just administration of criminal law. As members of the executive branch at the local, state, or federal level, they, like all other members of the executive branch, take an oath to support and defend the Constitution and faithfully execute the law as written. They do not make the laws. That duty falls on the legislative branch. For our purposes, rogue prosecutors are elected district attorneys who have been funded or inspired by George Soros or other wealthy individuals who buy into the idea that the entire criminal justice system is systemically racist and needs to be dismantled. There are four common features to these rogue prosecutors. One, they usurp the constitutional role of the legislative branch by refusing to prosecute entire categories of crime. Two, they abuse and misunderstand the role of the local prosecutor. Three, violent crime and many other crimes increase in cities where rogue prosecutors have been elected. And four, victims are forgotten. Their rights are ignored and public safety overall suffers. Keep in mind the following facts. Violent crime and incarcerations peaked in our country in the early 1990s. Both have declined dramatically as crime rates are the lowest they've been in decades until recently. And incarceration rates are also the lowest they've been in decades. This did not happen by accident, nor did it happen because of rogue prosecutors' policies. Instead, it happened because real prosecutors, Democrats or Republicans, who follow the law and protect victims' rights, created scores of alternatives to incarceration, specialty courts, community outreach programs, and more. They are the real progressives. The rogue prosecutor movement started in 2014 with money from liberal billionaire George Soros to unseat three pro-death penalty elected DAs. After removing those DAs from office, they decided to expand their goals and geographical scope beyond just unseating pro-death penalty DAs to all DAs who did not subscribe to their radical pro-criminal ideology. 
they realize that the DA is the gatekeeper to the criminal justice system. She decides who gets prosecuted, who doesn't, and what crimes to enforce. The movement's first national candidate was Kim Fox in Chicago, who unseated the first Democrat Latina elected to office as the Cook County DA, or state's attorney. Since then, the movement, funded by Soros and others, has provided the funding or inspiration for most of the rogue prosecutors across the country, including well-known folks like Larry Krasner in Philadelphia, Marilyn Mosby in Baltimore, Kim Gardner in St. Louis, George Gascon in LA, Chesa Boudin in San Francisco, and former Boston DA and now Massachusetts US Attorney Rachel Rollins. The movement is animated by two ideas. First, that the entire criminal justice system in the United States is systemically racist. And second, the only way to remedy the situation is to, as one prominent left-leaning professor wrote, quote, reverse engineer and dismantle the criminal justice infrastructure, unquote. Both claims lack merit, and dismantling the criminal justice system infrastructure is dangerous, as recent violent crime statistics show. The sad irony of the rogue prosecutor movement is it causes most harm to the very people they claim to care the most about, minorities. They suffer the brunt of these pro-criminal anti-victim policies. In today's symposium, we will explore two unique aspects of this movement. First, how United States attorneys in cities with rogue prosecutors have carried out their duty to enforce the law. And second, how the claims of the rogue prosecutor movement, systemic racism, mass incarceration, <coughs> over-policing, are false, and how their policies affect real victims. Hosting the first panel is my friend and heritage colleague and co-author Zach Smith. He's a legal fellow in the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies here at Heritage. He previously served for several years as an assistant United States attorney in the Northern District of Florida. Prior to that, he spent two years as a at a major law firm here in Washington, uh, where he joined after clerking for the Honorable Emmett R. Cox on the United States Court of Appeals for the 11th Circuit. Zach? If our uh, panelists could go ahead and join me on stage. Well, thank you for the very kind introduction, Cully. Uh, I'm pleased to be joined on stage today by three distinguished guests, each of whom previously served as a United States attorney. And by way of background, there are 93 U.S. attorneys in the United States, and each U.S. attorney is the chief federal law enforcement officer in his or her district. And while local district attorneys are charged with prosecuting state and local crimes, U.S. attorneys are charged with overseeing federal prosecutions. Traditionally, though, the local DAs and the U.S. attorney's offices have worked together to keep their communities safe. The recent wrinkle, though, as Cully mentioned, is the introduction of rogue prosecutors in many of our nation's cities. So our panelists today will help us discuss this phenomena and how U.S. attorneys can do their jobs effectively even when the local DA is a rogue prosecutor. To my immediate left is Andrew Lelling. Uh, Andrew is a partner in the Boston office of Jones Day, and he served as the United States Attorney in Massachusetts from December 2017 through February 2021. 
Uh, Andy was a federal prosecutor for 20 years, and he focused primarily on international drug trafficking and white-collar crime, including securities fraud, corporate and accounting fraud, and international money laundering. To Andy's left is Aaron Neely Cox. Aaron is a partner in Kirkland and Ellis and practices in the Government Regulatory and Internal Investigations Group. She's the former U.S. Attorney for the Northern District of Texas, and she was the only the third U.S. Attorney, a uh, female U.S. Attorney, in the district's 142-year history. And while in that role, she chaired the Attorney General's Advisory Group, uh, which is a group of 15 U.S. attorneys selected by the Attorney General to advise on national priorities, and she was only the eighth female U.S. attorney to serve in that capacity. To Aaron's left is Richard Donahue, uh, who currently practices at a major law firm in New York City, and he practices in the areas of corporate investigations and white-collar defense. Uh, prior to that, Rich served as the U.S. attorney in the Eastern District of New York, and he served as the principal associate deputy attorney general uh, in the Department of Justice. He also served for a number of years as an Army JAG officer, where his duties included serving at various times as a judge, a prosecutor, and a defense counsel. Thank you all so much for joining me today. Well, since our time is relatively short, I thought we would get right into it. And one of the questions that I have, and I think many people have, is what can U.S. attorneys do to essentially pick up the slack in many of these cities where rogue prosecutors are, have been elected as local DAs? Uh, and what can U.S. attorneys do to essentially help combat uh, the lack of prosecution in many of these cities and the, the rise in violent crime? If it's okay, Andy, we'll start with you. Well, I, I see this as... Uh moving on, on two tracks. One is the rhetorical side. I think something that rogue prosecutors underestimate is the need to convey to the public a tough message about crime. It matters what the officials who have the discretion to bring cases say publicly about crime and the need for order and the people from the, you know, the, the need to reduce violence, reduce drug use, that kind of thing. On the technical side, what U.S. attorneys can do is use the various federal statutes that we've got to pick up the slack in, a, in, a, in an almost literal way, right? So if you're watching cases proceed on the state level and you think that cases are being dismissed that shouldn't be or you think that charges are being brought that are too lenient, then you can step in with a federal prosecution even before the state prosecution is resolved. This doesn't happen that often. And in a way, I think that that's good because when it does happen, it really makes a statement both to the public and to the local DA that you're there watching and you are there to enforce what you think is the public interest, even if the local DA is not willing to do that. Great. Karen? Yeah, and I think, you know, you mentioned that um, all of us actually served on the Attorney General's Advisory Committee. And one of the things that we did in the interest of the entire Department of Justice is we talked about this need to look at the local communities and for the U.S. attorneys across the country to understand the needs of their local communities and where we felt like the local district attorneys were not stepping in. We were encouraging and supportive of the U.S. attorneys to form stronger connection and ties with the local and state authorities and to step in where they could with federal charges. And so, you know, where we saw crime rates rising, where we saw a need for federal charges, we were, you know, the entire department was very supportive about that because we understood that our single most important obligation as U.S. attorneys was to lead the effort to make our community safer, and this was one way we could make a significant impact. Excellent. Rich? 
Yeah, well, <clears throat> I certainly agree fully with everything that uh, Aaron and Andy just said. Um, to give a, a little bit of a context and, and the lay of the land, you need to understand how small we are versus our state colleagues. So I had about 125 criminal prosecutors in the Eastern District of New York, which covered five counties. Um, and by comparison, there were probably 1,400 or so um, state prosecutors in our jurisdiction. So when you realize the difference in the workload, the difference in the headcount, you have to be selective as the U.S. Attorney, as federal prosecutors, and what you pick. But we do have a tremendously potent arsenal, particularly when it comes to crime drivers such as drugs and gang violence. And so the department has long pursued projects such as Project Safe Neighborhood, Project Trigger Lock, and other task force approaches where we work very closely with state and local uh, law enforcement agencies, sometimes with the DA's involvement, sometimes without. But we are uniquely situated to be able to come in in the right cases and target the defendants who are the real drivers of crime numbers and remove them from the community. And if we do that well and we do it selectively, we can really have an outsized impact on the crime rates in our communities, even though we are relatively small compared to our state partners. Well, you mentioned that the federal prosecutors have some potent tools in their arsenals. And so one of the things I think would be helpful to discuss is what are some of the advantages of indicting someone federally in the, the state system versus the state system? Uh, are they less likely to, to get released on bail? Do they serve longer sentences? What are some of those tools uh, in a federal prosecutor's arsenal uh, that they, they can use to effectively combat crime? So just to touch on some of the highlights, um, certainly we have a, from a New York perspective, a better uh, bail system. Um, and it's really about pretrial confinement, right? Uh, there's been a lot of discussion in New York over the last couple of years about what they call bail reform. It, it's in some sense more of a, uh, a disassembling of the uh, bail structure in New York. And, and thankfully, there's been uh, somewhat of a public response, and we've seen it in election results and otherwise. So there are some attempts now in Albany to undo some of the, uh, the damage that's been done. But we do have a system where when you have a defendant in custody, you can bring them in front of a judge, and the judge can consider everything that's relevant, their criminal history, the crime that they're charged with, the strength of the evidence in the current case, um, whether they're a flight risk, whether they're a danger to society. These are things that New York State judges have been precluded, specifically precluded from law, from considering um, in some instances. So we have that advantage. We also have an advantage of being able to charge racketeering offenses and larger conspiracy cases than is typically the case in state court. Um, so you can capture more of the criminal conduct and more of the participants in the criminal conduct. And then we have more mandatory minimums um, and we have some higher sentences. And absolutely key in the violent crime context is when you get convicted in federal court and you are serving a federal sentence, you are going to be removed from the community. It's very likely that you're going to be uh, far from New York City. Right? And therefore, it's not the situation where fellow gang members can get on a bus and take a short ride and go upstate and, and visit you, and you can continue to control your gang. So there are a lot of advantages in the federal system to prosecuting people, but we have to be selective in who we target. Yeah, and I do think two things I would add to that. Um, number one, on the issue of bail, I think in the federal system, it's, you know, it's, it's so important because federal prosecutors are the ones that move to detain. We have ability to assess that, and we put on evidence at a motion to detain, and the judges make the decision. Therefore, you know, when we encounter violent criminals, we feel like if they're a danger to the community or a fly risk, we have an obligation to move to detain. In the state system in Texas, 
That is not how it works. The only way that the prosecutors can move to detain is after the initial determination, and for whatever reason, that is not happening. So oftentimes, um, defendants are being let out after having committed very violent crimes. And so this is another way that the federal um, prosecutors are having to pick up slack, where where state defendants are being let out after they have been charged with very violent crimes. And you hear this a lot, this refrain from local police, that they're just completely demoralized by the fact that they're out arresting violent criminals. And then within 24, 48 hours, these violent criminals are back on the street. How are they going to make any real impact in creating a safer community when they have done their jobs and yet these violent criminals aren't being detained? So in that example, when the, there are federal charges, the feds do try to step in and move to detain. And most often we do get those criminals detained because we put on the evidence that they're a danger to the community and we get them detained. So that's a, a benefit to the federal system. Um, and then with respect to, you know, we do tend to go a lot quicker in the federal system. Our cases do tend to get resolved, whether it's by guilty pleas or by trials. We have a less volume and so we have a speedy trial act and so they we we can get our cases moving through the system faster than the state can. Andy? Uh, I think the only thing I'd add as a corollary to what Aaron said is that I, I think something uh, the, the rogue prosecutors around the country underestimate is that street level gang members or other violent criminals are actually pretty sophisticated about the difference between the state and federal system. And so if you keep in mind the view from the street, you see the potency you have on the federal side. And so the average gang member who gets arrested on a state charge knows he's probably going home that day. But if he's arrested federally, he's much more likely to be detained for the pendency of his case. He's more likely to be convicted and he's more likely to go to prison on a mandatory minimum or at least for some substantial period. And so look at what happens here. Once that person gets arrested, he never comes back. And other people in that community see that and know that, that on a federal charge, you're never going to see, you're going to see them in five years. Whereas on a state charge, you're going to see them for dinner. And that has genuine deterrent value, which I think the current crop of prosecutors don't really understand. And so you know, don't sort of build that into their own calculations about how crime should be you know, pursued. And just to add to Andy's point on that, that's very important, is that victims know this as well, right? So when you're in a community and you're trying to get people to cooperate with law enforcement officers, if they know that guy's home for dinner and they're going to see him on the street the next day, it's a great point. understandably, they are not cooperating. Um, and, and there's a real fear and it's well-founded. Whereas if he's detained prior to trial, if they see that people removed from the community are gone for significant periods of time, they feel much safer in terms of cooperating with law enforcement. And that's key to many of our cases. And when prosecutors make announcements about the limitations that they're putting on crimes, when they say, we're not going to prosecute marijuana offenses if, if you have less than four ounces or less than two ounces, that gets out on the street very quickly. Suddenly, the police departments are not finding people with more than four ounces or more than two ounces or whatever the limitation has been publicly disclosed. So it, it's absolutely something that the street gangs are very wise to. Well, I want to piggyback on that point because one of the things that many of these rogue prosecutors say is that they are not prosecuting what they've termed quality of life crimes, uh, low-level drug offenses, theft below a certain level, 
so that they say they can focus on more serious crimes. Uh, I'd be curious to get your perspectives on that, uh, particularly because you said one of the benefits of being a, a U.S. attorney, a federal prosecutor, is to focus on the worst offenders. Uh, Rich, do you have any thoughts on that? So the quality of life crimes are incredibly important, and I just think it's a red herring to say that we don't have the resources to, to enforce them or they're not worth enforcing or they have a disparate impact on minorities or anything like that. I don't think any of those arguments withstand scrutiny. Um, first of all, a lot of these quality of life crimes um, lead to larger things, right? So we were talking earlier about how a lot of cases, significant cases in New York City history have been made, you know, starting with a turnstile jumping case, right? Because the guy who jumps the turnstile has a gun, and the gun is linked to a murder, and so on and so forth, where he's got distribution uh, quantities of drugs. Um, and so those those crimes matter, enforcement of those crimes matter, and the police department knows it. They know it well. They've seen it. Um, we've historically driven um, crime down for 25 years, um, and quality of life policing was a big part of that success. Now, unfortunately, in the last few years, we've rebounded, so we're seeing the consequences of it. But... Um, you know, quality of life is, and when they, these prosecutors sort of wave the wand and say this entire class of crimes will not be enforced, again, to Aaron's point, it demoralizes the police. It reduces their ability to effectively protect the community. Um, it also strips away legislative power and, and things of that sort. But it really does damage the life of our citizens in the city day to day because law-abiding citizens find themselves ceding the public square to criminals because they have no choice. Yeah, and just, just to play out a line, you, you take a criminal offense that seems fairly innocuous, let's say criminal trespass. We're not going to prosecute criminal trespass. And you think, well, that can't be that big of a deal, right? But what you have to play out is you are a business owner. You're in a strip shopping center. Now the, the police department is not going to cr prosecute criminal trespass. You start having two or three people show up in the parking lot, not being nobody can shoo them away. Now six to eight people show up in the parking lot. Now they're playing dice games. Now a few of them have guns. Now they're selling drugs. Now you have a gang problem. And it all started because you couldn't call the police to get the people from hanging out in your parking lot, right? That's just a criminal trespass offense. It's a very minor offense. But without being able to prosecute that or even the deterrent effect of being able to call the police and have them, you know, threaten to arrest on that, you have shopping centers that have massive, you know, just open, open air drug selling now. And it all started with the ability to gather and no ability to deter that conduct. And, and there's very little that the feds can do about that. Right. And so you have this type of non-prosecution going on that just leads to bigger and bigger and bigger problems. And Aaron, I'd like to follow up on that because I know one of the things we were talking about earlier is this idea of prosecutorial discretion. You know, a lot of rogue DAs are not prosecuting many of those types of crimes and saying that they're using their prosecutorial discretion not to do that. Can you talk a little bit about uh, why that is not a traditional understanding of prosecutorial discretion and what an appropriate use of prosecutorial discretion might be? Right. I, I mean, I, I have heard that, and I just think that's a bit of a false narrative because, you know, prosecutorial discretion doesn't mean that you get to, as a prosecutor, decide wholesale you're not going to prosecute certain crimes. It does not imbue a prosecutor with legislative authority, right? 
if a, a prosecutor has discretion on any case, given the facts, to either take the case or not, given the evidence. But what I could not do as a U.S. attorney is say, there's a whole class of federal crimes that I just will not prosecute. And importantly, I think I'm going to have a press conference to announce the crimes that I will not prosecute. That is simply not prosecutorial discretion. And when you do that, it creates real problems for your community when you do that. Yeah. Uh, no, I think that's all. I think that's all uh, exactly right. And you can see this trend developing over the course of several years with an overall reduction in respect for certain laws. And so, marijuana is actually a great example, right? There's any number of states that are probably up to 20 that have passed laws allowing possession and distribution of marijuana, while knowing that it is in fact illegal under federal law to possess and distribute marijuana, and knowing that federal law is supreme in this area, and they do it despite that. So that is sort of an indicator along the line of this uh, trend. And so I think what you're seeing with, with the uh, rogue prosecutors is an absolute intrusion into the legislative function. By categorically carving out immunity for certain crimes, they are short-circuiting legislative process where the legislature may have decided that, you know, it, like Dallas is actually a great example. I think the DA in Dallas, didn't he decide to not charge larceny for under $750 in value? Right. If the legislature wanted that, it would have done that. And, and you know, just to <clears throat> excuse me, just to follow up on the, <clears throat> one of Aaron's points. <clears throat> excuse me. The um, it's not as if we're seeing these prosecutors say, "Well, as a matter of limited resources and within my my prosecutorial discretion, I'm not going to pursue these classes because I need to apply those resources further up the criminal chain." What we're seeing is them select to basically disassemble the system from top to bottom. And so in New York, for instance, uh, murder one is a limited class of murders, police officers, witnesses, things of that sort. So you see DAs in, in New York City even saying now, we will not pursue life without parole in murder cases, period. Um, which means if a police officer gets killed in New York City in that particular county, um, if they follow through on this this publicly stated commitment, they will not pursue um, murder in such a way that the defendant can get life without the possibility of parole. So that doesn't tell me you're taking the resources that you would otherwise focus on quality of life or lower level offenses and applying them elsewhere to get more deterrence. You're actually across the board dismantling the system and watering it down, which only encourages, of course, violence against police officers and less safety in the community. Well, and, and just to, you know, it's, I don't want it, prosecutorial discretion to be misinterpreted too because we all used our prosecutorial discretion and every sure. prosecutor wants to have it. Some of the most important decisions that we made as U.S. attorneys were the ones that we made not to prosecute individuals, the, the decisions that we made that no one will ever know about, right? But to, to say that we, you know, would just wholesale not, uh, you know, announce that we weren't going to prosecute certain crimes would not be what we were doing. Sure. Now, each of you served as U.S. attorney in cities where uh, a local DA uh, had been, a rogue prosecutor had been elected as the local DA. So one of the things I'm curious about is uh, what is the best approach for a U.S. attorney to take when the local prosecutor has made those types of announcements, that they're not going to prosecute entire categories of crimes, that they're not going to seek uh, certain sentences, even though the legislature has authorized them. Uh, what is that relationship like with that local DA, and how can U.S. attorneys uh, still effectively uh, use their authority? Uh, Andy? 
Uh, I actually had a great personal relationship with our local DA, and I still do. She's now the U.S. Attorney there. Because Ra I, Rachel Rollins. Uh, Rachel Rollins. Because I, I, I thought that while I was the U.S. Attorney and she was the DA in, in Suffolk County, it was not in the public interest to air the dirty laundry that way, to have those spats publicly. And so we tried to work with her where we could, on gang cases and that kind of thing. On a separate track, though, what I would do, because I, I think this is an important aspect of the prosecutor role that isn't discussed often enough, which is uh, I would have um, very clear communications with federal, state, and local law enforcement agencies to say, look, we have your back. Continue to do what you're doing. If you have a case that you, needs done, that you need done and the Boston DA's office won't do it, call us. We will do it. And also, when it came to public messaging, went out of my way to be extremely supportive of state, you know, federal, state, and local law enforcement agencies. Sure. Law enforcement agencies are extremely sensitive to morale issues because, correctly, they think to themselves, we're the ones putting ourselves at physical risk for your benefit, so you better be supporting our activities. And so I, it, in my jurisdiction, I found that that worked best. It was in no one's interest to have an overly hostile uh, and certainly not publicly hostile relationship with, this, with my counterpart. That, that didn't make the community any safer. <clears throat> and so that was the approach. I took. Yeah, and I would say, I had similarly, I had a, and do have a very good relationship with the DA in Dallas County. Um, he is a person that I respect. Um, he had a lot of good experiences in Dallas, and we worked together on many, many important uh, initiatives where we could benefit the community and still work together on, on certain things. We were, we had lots of discussions, and we importantly, respectfully just disagreed on certain fundamental things. And it was never going to be a situation where we disagreed publicly or did anything publicly to make the other person feel like we were disrespectful of one another's um, positions because I, I certainly felt like it was incumbent upon the U.S. Attorney to forge those relationships for the safety of the community as best that we could. We needed to work together in areas that we could work together, and we did very successfully on domestic violence, on human trafficking, on project safe neighborhood issues that we could, and there was just no way that I was gonna jeopardize doing that because we disagreed on some other fundamental things. I certainly was open and upfront about our disagreements, and he was too, but we were able to work together on many, many things which benefited our community, and so we did that. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. You have to have a constructive uh, relationship, as constructive as possible under the circumstances. There's just too much at stake. There's a lot you can still work together on very collaboratively. They're basically only two teams, good guys and bad guys. And sometimes, you know, as a good guy, you, you have some not great teammates. Um, but you do the best you can. And there are areas where we can have a lot of overlap, such as drugs and violent crime. And we can very directly take up slack. And there's other areas where you just don't have that federal reach. Um, I didn't find it constructive to speak out, you know, publicly, like my colleague said, uh, about certain DAs or their policies. They're elected by by the people, and we have a shared responsibility. Um, I did speak out publicly um, about bail reform in New York because I thought it was dangerous and misguided. Um, but that was speaking about you know legislation that had been passed in Albany and things of that nature. Um, and what I thought they should be considering, because as a as a public safety advocate for the people of my community and my district, I felt the need to speak out and things like that. But um, generally, you do the best you can, and you know you you make good 
decisions along the way to do the best in the interest of the, of the community. Now, all of you were U.S. attorneys under the Trump administration. Uh, we obviously have a new administration in power. Is there anything that the Biden administration or Biden-appointed U.S. attorneys should be doing uh, that they are not uh, to help keep their communities safe, especially uh, in communities where these road DAs are not prosecuting many crimes? Uh, Andy? Uh, when that issue comes up, what I think about most is uh, messaging. There are obviously substantive things you can do, right? right. So homicides are up 20 or 30% year over year. The opioid epidemic is worse than it has ever been, despite our efforts over the last few years. But, you know, COVID made short work of our efforts. So, you know, no more memos about school boards, right? It may right. Make a nationwide push on violent crime and, um, and drug enforcement. One of the things we were told when we started as U.S. attorneys is that we have a, a, a very, you know, sort of rhetorically powerful position. Sure. I remember A.G. Sessions used to describe us as the convening authority in our districts, right? Lead from the front. And so what you need from the attorney general on down is distinct messaging by the, you know, D.C. and by the U.S. attorneys about the need to combat violent crime, not gun violence, right? Violent crime and drug trafficking because the tone matters, right? That does trickle down to the street. If people think that there will be sort of unhesitating and strong enforcement, you will begin to see something of a deterrent effect, but that is not the messaging that you see. And I do think that that, that, that is a big factor. I think that has been very lacking in the current moment that we're in where we see crime creeping up across the country. Sure, Aaron? Yeah, I, I do think that uh, you have to realize that one of the most important tools that the Department of Justice has is the 93 field generals that they have in the U.S. Attorney offices. I mean, this is the way that Maine Justice can have a huge impact out across the entire country. And one thing that I think that General Barr and General Sessions did was really empower the U.S. Attorneys to look within their districts determine within their districts what were the most pressing crimes that we had to deal with and work with our state and local and federal agencies to deal with them. Violent crime was a huge issue for all of us. Drug crime was an issue. Human trafficking was an issue. We were to look within our districts and understand what was happening and where we could make the biggest impact. And they empowered us then to communicate that message of what we were doing within our districts. And so we were to communicate what we were doing through press conferences, through media releases. They wanted, uh, they wanted our community to hear from us. They didn't want all the messaging to be coming from Maine Justice. They wanted us to be in our communities, talking with our people. And, and you know, for someone like me, like, uh, like Rich was saying, my district was you know, a vast swath of Texas. I mean, over 8 million people. It was the largest district in Texas. Um, if my district were a state, it'd be the 10th largest state in the union. So there was a large uh, geographic community to cover, and I was expected to get out into that community and talk and work with the people, and we were empowered to do that. Rich? Yeah, so um, I've had the privilege of serving in sworn positions under every president since Reagan. In the Justice Department, I served under every president from Bill Clinton through Joe Biden. Um, and what I've told people consistently throughout that time is that when we have a change in administration, recognize that law enforcement is the area probably least affected by that because no one 
wants gangs to succeed. No one wants drug dealers to succeed. There's no Republican versus Democrat way of taking down a street gang. Um, so the overlap is, is very, very significant, um, and the continuation <coughs> effort within the department is, is something that the American people um, can trust and rely on. Um, that said, it's very important, and I would say to my colleagues who are in the seats right now, that you need to recognize that you as a U.S. attorney are directly responsible for the crime rates in your district. Um, I used to track CompStat in New York, NYPD uses CompStat, a very, very detailed real-time data. It's fantastic. It really lets you see what's going on in the city almost on an hourly basis. It's that accurate. Um, and you can see crime spikes. You can see trends developing. You can see bad actors in certain parts of the city. I would tell them, don't fall victim to the theory that the DAs are responsible for that day-to-day -day stuff, and we as federal prosecutors somehow fly above it and occasionally make racketeering cases that have an impact. That's not what we do. As U.S. attorneys, we're as responsible for the day-to-day -day violent crime rates in our districts as the DAs, and we need to look at it that way, and we need to work collaboratively in a task force model with those state and local law enforcement authorities to address it on a day-to-day -day basis. Excellent. Well, I see we are, we have a few minutes left in our uh, panel here, and I know we want to leave time for some questions, either from folks in the audience, or we may have some questions coming in uh, from our viewers online. Uh, so if anyone has any questions uh, they would like to ask our panelists, uh, please start thinking about those, uh, and we will uh, we'll go to the question and answer portion of our program uh, after this next question. I didn't want to follow up on something I think you mentioned, Ritz, something you mentioned, Aaron. Uh, you mentioned a program called Project Safe Neighborhood. Uh, if you don't mind, could you just briefly tell us what that is, why it's important, and how U.S. attorneys maybe can use that uh, to effectively <coughs> combat violent crime? Uh, Rich or Aaron? Sure. So PSM was first started, I believe, in uh, 2001 might be off by a year or so, but I was a relatively young AUSA at that time, and it was tremendously exciting as uh, young AUSAs to be told by our leadership, we want you to go out there and address violent crime directly. Um, don't wait for it to work its way up from the DA's offices, whatever it may be. And what we did was we prioritized gun crime, um, Hobbs Act robberies, robberies relating to commercial establishments and things like that. Um, but we also worked very collaboratively with our DA's, so in the Eastern District of New York, and I think it was like this across the, the department, we reached out to each DA's office and we said, we want you to work with us on this. Give us your prosecutors. We will pay their salaries for the year. We will make them special AUSAs, and they will exist in both worlds. They'll do your cases in your, your state and county court, and they'll help us identify this defendant who's a particular bad actor who's worthy of federal consideration, and then they bring the cases over to us, and they do the cases in our courthouse with AUSAs. It was tremendously effective. There's a great deal of data about how successful PSM was in those early years of 2001 through 2005 or 6. Um, in the Obama administration, it continued on paper, but it was de-emphasized and a lot of the funding went away. In the Trump administration, it was brought back. Um, and again, same results. Tremendous data, tremendous results, tremendous partnership with locals. So PSM is very, very important to the success of driving down crime rates in our local communities. Yeah, and I think what, uh, I think in the Trump administration, actually PSN was improved because there was a lot of studies done from the early years. And uh, in the Trump administration, we used a lot of data-driven uh, exercises. So when we started our PSN programs up in, 
back up again in the Northern District of Texas, we used an outside criminologist to look at the crime rate in the big ur urban areas and where it was happening. And then that's where we focused our enforcement efforts. So we focused in just on the data, looking at the data where the vi most violent crime was happening in our cities, and then we focused and targeted our enforcement areas there. The other thing that we did was using our grant money, we then engaged our communities in very direct ways in those same areas. So we went into the communities, we had, um, you know, we engaged with the school children, we engaged with the communities, we used uh, our resources at the U.S. Attorney's Office and also at the DA's Office and also at our agencies to go into those communities, introduce them to law enforcement, let them know who we were and what we were doing. I mean, we had our families in there, we had, you know, we had a lot of specific events so that it wasn't just an enforcement effort. We were trying to let them know that we were making their communities safer and we did we used money to take out blighted areas and to add lighting and to add community areas for these impacted areas. It was a very comprehensive program and it was one that, you know, again, is being emphasized. It's not being called PSN, but it's my hope that it's still going on. Andy, anything to add? Uh, just two things. I, I think the one of the fundamental principles of the PSM program was the finding from the 90s into the early 2000s that if you focused only on the most violent actors in a given community and found a way to prosecute them federally and took them out of the community, it had an outsized impact on violent crime stats because individual actors were committing multiple violent crimes over the course of, say, a given year. And so they tried this in Boston in the 90s with the help of some guys from Harvard, and they cut the homicide rate by 60% one year, they, they called it the Boston Miracle back then. And that was the, the nub of the idea, and it's a great idea. With PSN, that grew into sort of this more structured way, which these guys have described, of interacting with state and local authorities in sort of a, a, you know, a symbiotic approach to tackling crime. And it was a way, a structured way of funneling uh, grants and money into local communities. So th there's basically no downside to PSN. Sure. Every administration should be doing it, and so seeing it de-emphasized, um, like it, as Rich noted in Obama, it was de-emphasized de for, you know, seven years, and that was too bad. You have the prosecutors devoted to that kind of work, sort of treading water, uh, waiting for new funding and new resources so they can go at it again. Sure. And just a quick comment is, uh, you know, Andy talked about the miracle, right? There were miracles across the city and across the country for 25 years. We had about uh, 2,200 murders and New York City in 1992, the year I graduated law school, um, we drove that down to less than 300 over the next 25 or 27 years. That's incredible. If you had said to the law enforcement community in New York in 1992, we need you to drive the murder rate down by 87%, everyone would have said that's impossible, but it's not impossible. We know how to do it. We know how to address these issues. It's not something new we need to learn. It's just a matter of how you the will to do it. Sure. Well, if anyone in our audience has any uh, questions they'd like to ask our panelists, we'll send a uh, microphone. Uh, let's see, I see a hand in the back uh, on the left there, and then we'll, uh, we'll come down front afterwards. Hi, I'm Mary Strayhorn. I, um, I've been following this issue for about five years now, and my question is, um, when it comes to rogue prosecutors, what recourse does a crime victim have within the federal system to bring the issue of a crime before the feds under circumstances when the victim is faced with a police 
department that will <coughs> withhold a police report and demand that the victim get a court order to get their police report, uh, when the attorneys won't take a case because there is no police report in the victim's possession, and um, they assume that there's something wrong with it if the prosecutors refuse to prosecute it. And uh, the third element is uh, rogue prosecutors refusing to communicate with crime victims, claiming that there's no file or it's all work product. When a victim's faced with that situation and the time the clock is ticking, how does a victim approach the federal prosecutors with that situation with no attorney, no police report, no cooperation from the DA? What's, what's the practical steps that they need to take? I think our next panel will talk specifically about victims and victims' rights uh, some, uh, but I open it up to, to any of our panels if they have any uh, thoughts. So uh, it's not a great situation, right, because there's so much out there and there's so much that uh, the U.S. Attorney's Office has to consider, but I think, I know certainly in our district, I'm sure in every district, right on the website you can go in there and contact them. There are uh, complaint forms you can file. Now, that said, it's not a great situation because, as you say, you don't have a police report. As an AUSA on intake duty, there's not a lot to assess there. And you do start with the presumption that if the case was worthy of federal prosecution, they were referred it to us or something of that sort. But I, I would say the, the role of victims' organizations, not just the individual victim, which is incredibly important, but one thing that we're missing in the current conversation is what was so important in the 1980s, which was victims' rights organizations stepping forward. In the federal system, we've got the Crime Victim Rights Act. It's, it's a fairly strong um, statute that gives victims access and a voice. But if you're not in the federal system because the crime hasn't been charged there, it's just not available to you. So definitely make your concerns known. Definitely report to the U.S. Attorney's Office, but try to work with crimes victims groups to show the U.S. Attorney's Office that not just this individual case, but these types of cases are not being adequately addressed locally. Yeah, we had these we had these exact discussions about how the victims' rights organizations were so much more vocal. Um, but I, I will tell you that I had these very examples that came to me when I was U.S. Attorneys, and these were victims, and they wanted us to help them get their cases prosecuted at the state level. And it's a a heartbreaking situation when you have to tell them, hey, I as the U.S. Attorney cannot force the state to take your case. What I can do is I can have you meet with a federal agency, whether it's DEA, FBI, Secret Service, and they can explore whether there's a federal charge. And if there is not, then there is honestly nothing I can do for you. And every single time I would arrange those meetings because the U.S. Attorney's Office doesn't investigate crimes, right? We work with our federal investigative agencies to do it, but on many, many occasions that was the result, and it's a heartbreaking one. So I, I hear the frustration in your question, and it's one we deal with a lot. Jurisdiction because the victim was the resident of a state outside of where the crime was committed, does that give rise to a federal, uh, to federal jurisdiction? Would that be enough for the federal prosecutors to say, well, because the residents are in two different, or because the crime happened in one jurisdiction, and the victim was a resident of another, is that enough? Not typically, no. But it really just depends on the type of crime, and that is what we would explore in those conversations. And I think I saw a uh, another hand down front here, in the front row. A lot of liberals who are soft on crime also support strict gun control. And I'm trying to find out, do you know if these same prosecutors who are soft on these victimizing crime 
uh, are willing to punish those who use guns in defense of self and others against victimizing crime. Thank you. Thoughts? Well, one of the things uh, I am curious about, you know, federal prosecutors often prosecute felon in possession uh, cases of guns. Why are those types of felon in possession cases so important for uh, federal prosecutors to bring? Uh, Andy? Well, I mean, these guys can speak to it too, but I, I, I think something common to all of us is that uh, felon in possession charges are often an effective way of getting more serious criminals off of the street because, by definition, this is an individual with a, with a prior felony. Usually the felon in possession cases you're doing involve someone with a violent prior felony. They have now been found with a firearm. And so they're generally easier cases to prove, and you can get those people off the street, and so not committing further, further violent acts, and into federal custody. And it's easy to do a lot of those, uh, sure. a, a lot of those uh, cases. Uh, to, to this gentleman's question, I can tell you on the federal side, this issue doesn't come up that often. I can tell you that, you know, I, I think when we were in office, if someone had used a firearm uh, in the course of self-defense, you would think very hard about whether you would prosecute them for that kind of thing, since we recognize that you are allowed to do that. But I think that scenario comes up much more on the state and local level than it does on the May, may issue permitting, and I've heard of a case in Oakland where a store owner uh, was prosecuted because he uh, went out and shot uh, at some muggers, robbing one of his customers. They went out the store, and you know, and and that's what I'm trying to figure out. Do you, are, are these same uh, state and local prosecutors that consider rogue prosecutors go after are strict on this punishing those who use uh, who are not otherwise criminals who use firearms in defense of self and others against crime who can't get permits. These guys might know more. I've seen very few stories on that. I, I think the, I, there's two things I can say. One, I haven't heard any of the rogue prosecutors address this directly, meaning I, I don't know that that would be a priority for them. Two, self-defense is a defense. And so if you have someone who uses a firearm uh, in self-defense, I think even the rogue prosecutors are not going to be quick to prosecute that person because that, uh, legally that will be a loser. And so I do not think that they'd be eager to bring that case, even though the rogue prosecutors, I think, would more generally be perfectly happy to prosecute gun crimes because they want guns off the street and generally supportive of gun control. I think your comment, too, has some broader implications because, you know, why do you have these confrontations, right? You have these confrontations in part because people in the community don't feel that law enforcement can or is protecting them. Um, and so that's part of the unfortunate part of, goes back to quality of life prosecutions and whether or not morale is good in the, the police department and things like that, because we all seen it. I mean, most of us here are, have been around long enough to remember the, the 80s and 90s and, and how it was. I certainly saw it in New York City. I was born there, I went to school there, I spent most of my professional career in the city. Um, when you have this sort of low level lawlessness, it encourages um, a situation where you unfortunately have more confrontations between citizens and criminals instead of just the police and criminals. And those can go bad in a lot of ways. Yeah, and that's almost the counterintuitive part. I mean, at least in, in where I was a U.S. attorney, I worked very successfully with the DA to prosecute gun crimes. We partnered up on gun crime cases, and, you know, that was part of our violent crime reduction area, especially in the cases of domestic violence cases where we prosecuted domestic violence offenders that then were carrying guns. So, you know, counterintuitively, we did that very successfully. 
And I think we have time for one more quick question. Uh, I know we have some more hands in the audience, but we are getting some questions online, I think, as well. And so I wanted to see if, uh, if we had any online uh, questions. Yes, we have one online. We have several online questions. One of them has asked, and they've heard you say in the past that rogue prosecutors or progressive U.S. attorneys might not be as big of a problem as rogue DAs because there are more guardrails for federal prosecutors. They have to answer to the AG. There are federal policies, et cetera. But don't U.S. attorneys still exercise great discretion? Is there any action Congress can or should take to put more guardrails in place? Thoughts? I, personally, I don't think I would encourage Congress to put more guardrails in place for U.S. attorneys. I think you want the field generals, as Aaron described them, to have a lot of discretion about how to fight crime in their particular district since the districts vary tremendously in what their law enforcement needs are. I do think that the uh, you know, rogue prosecutors who become U.S. attorneys are facing greater control than when they were purely elected officials. I think that is healthy. I think if you are a, you know, a rogue prosecutor who is now a U.S. attorney and you do something that's really out of bounds, you are going to get a phone call from D.C. about that, and I think, I think that is a good thing. So I, I, I think that is an improvement on having these men and women as elected DAs. Uh, they do have a lot more power than the local DAs, but I don't think I would go so far as to suggest that Congress should step in and further restrict the role of the U.S. attorney in a given district. Yeah, I mean, you're not an elected official anymore. You report to the attorney general, and you serve at the pleasure of the president. So. Well, uh, thank you all so much for participating in our panel today. This has been a fascinating discussion. Uh, if everyone would please join me in giving our panelists a round of applause. Thank you. And if uh, you don't mind, if you'll, uh, uh, you can go ahead and return to your seats, and our next panelist can begin uh, making their way to the stage. And it is my pleasure for our next panel to introduce, uh, reintroduce my colleague, Cully Stimson, who kicked off our program today. As Cully mentioned, he's the Deputy Director of the Edwin Meese Center for Legal and Judicial Studies here at the Heritage Foundation, and he also serves as a Senior Legal Fellow here. Uh, Cully is an experienced trial attorney. He served as a prosecutor at the state and local levels, and he also served as a, uh, in a variety of roles as a JAG officer in the Navy. He served as an Assistant United States Attorney for the District of Columbia, and as a prosecutor, he is focused on homicides, violent sex crimes, domestic violence, and other felonies. He also served as a Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense in the George W. Bush administration, and he writes extensively about crime control and criminal justice policy. Cully's my co-author on the Rogue Prosecutor series and my co-author for our upcoming book on the same topic. Cully, I turn it back over to you. Well, thank you, Zach, and a great first panel. Uh, and we're going to switch our uh, focus now from U.S. attorneys uh, to the broader uh, uh, milieu of the rogue prosecutor arguments, uh, and then also a view from the victim's uh, perspective. I'm delighted to be joined on uh, the stage uh, with two friends and colleagues. Uh, Kathleen Cady uh, is a victim's rights attorney in Los Angeles. She provides pro bono representation to crime victims and assists them with asserting their rights in criminal and juvenile justice cases. She was a deputy DA in the LADA's office for 30 years, from 1989 to 2019, where she held leadership positions in the Victim Impact Program, the Bureau of Victim Services, 
and prosecuted hundreds of cases, including high visibility homicide, sexual assault, child abuse, and other complex cases. She's a board member on the National Crime Victim Law Institute, the Children's Advocacy Centers of California, served on the California Children's Justice Ta Act Task Force, and has received numerous awards, uh, no doubt, through her storied career. To date, she has represented over 100 families of murder victims in response to George Gascone's policies which violate victims' rights. Rafael Mangual is a senior fellow and head of research for the Policing and Public Safety Initiative at the Manhattan Institute in New York and a contributing editor of City Journal. His first book, Criminal Injustice, will be available in July of this year. He has authored and co-authored a number of reports and op-eds on issues ranging from urban crime and jail violence to broader matters of criminal and civil justice reform. His work has been featured everywhere. In 2020, he was appointed for, to serve a four-year term as a member of the New York State Advisory Committee of the U.S. Commission <coughs> on Civil Rights, and he holds a B.A. from City University of New York's Baruch College and a J.D. from DePaul University in Chicago. So we're really delighted to have two experts here joining the discussion. I thought it would be helpful if we uh, used uh, some of the policies of George Gascone, who we've described in our literature as the king of rogue prosecutors uh, as a proxy to talk about the movement writ large. So if you'd bear with me, um, I'm going to tick off uh, a number of the main policies he, have, he has uh, uh, dictated to his huge staff, uh, the largest DA's office in the country, uh, and then invite uh, my colleagues to jump in uh, and talk about the two topics they're going to be talking about. So on his first day in office, George Gascone, as you know, Kathy uh, and Rafe, um, Gascone issued these so-called special directives, which are just orders from on high to all the DAs, and you have to follow them. The first, uh, in no particular order, pretrial release, uh, which means uh, he talked about how cash bail is, creates a, quote, two-tiered system of justice and leads to, quote, unnecessary incarceration and under the directive, prosecutors are prohibited, regardless of a, cr a criminal's long record, from requesting cash bail for any misdemeanor or so-called non-serious felony. Misdemeanor case management directive basically says these are 13 crimes you can commit in L.A., and the list is non-exhaustive. Uh, the order says, quote, misdemeanor crimes, quote, shall be declined or dismissed before arraignment and without conditions, period. Sentencing enhancement and allegations, and Kathy, you and I are going to go into this extensively because you've written a lot about it, where he orders his DAs to, quote, eliminate most sentencing enhancements, well, all sentencing enhancements, special circumstances, life without parole eligible sentences, and the death penalty, even though California voters have upheld those things and the legislature has passed those things. Uh, and, Kathy, you noted in one of your writings that there are over... 100 sentencing enhancement allegations and special circumstances laws in California, some of which are mandatory, but he has directed his DAs not to follow them. Youth Justice Directive says you can't send anyone under 18 uh, to adult court no matter what. The Habeas Corpus Litigation Unit, it's charged to look for all cases where there were convictions earned by your office uh, to look for, quote, injustice, including, quote, racial injustice. In other words, the Fox and the Hen House office which unwinds convictions your office earned. Uh, 
He takes the death penalty off the table for any case, no matter how horrible. He established a Conviction Integrity Unit, which they claim, the rogue prosecutors claim, they started, of course, that didn't start under their tenure. It started in actually traditional independent DA offices years before that. Reserves the right to review any case, quote, in the interest of justice, including cases that were, quote, tainted by racial discrimination, unquote. Um, in his directive, he talks about unwinding up to 40,000 convictions that were earned by your office. Uh, prosecutors are required to, quote, reevaluate and consider for resentencing people who have already served 15 years in prison in the resentencing directive. So if you got a sentence over 15 years and you've served 15 years, you are required to, quote, join in the defendant's motion to strike all alleged sentence enhancements and join the defense attorney to let them out. Those are some of the most egregious of the directives uh, by George Gascon. And um, so, Rafe, let me, let me start with you. Um, we're all looking forward to reading your book. You know, it's going to be awesome. This is not a book tour. We'll have you for your book tour. Uh, but you've done a lot of writing uh, looking into some of the underlying arguments that the rogue prosecutor movement uh, has has made, one of which is the entire system is systemically racist. Uh, they talk about reimagining prosecution. There's mass incarceration. Jump into the conversation and talk about the things that you think are wrong about those assertions. Thank you for mentioning the book because the book was really an attempt to kind of interrogate the veracity of all of those narratives. And, and so I'll, I'll just do a little overview of, of each of those. Start with mass incarceration, this idea that the United States is systematically denying people second chances is just not true. The idea that our prisons are overflowing with low-level, nonviolent offenders is just not true. The vast majority of people in prison in the United States are there serving time for a violent crime. The ones that are not serving time for a violent crime often have violent criminal histories. And with respect to the whole second chance argument, I think it's really worth noting that the average state prisoner in the United States, when they are released from prison, already has ten and a half prior arrests and nearly five prior convictions. These are not people who are being denied second chances. These are people who are consistently blowing second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, and ninth chances. Um, you know, the other thing about the, the mass incarceration argument is that it implies a mass decarceration solution. So really, the easiest way to test whether we have a mass incarceration problem is to ask whether we would suffer a public safety harm if we engaged in an en masse release of people from, from prison. And we have some clues about how that would work out in our recidivism data. For example, longitudinal studies done by the Bureau of Justice, Justice Statistics clearly and consistently show that between 80 and 85 percent of all people released from state prison will go on to reoffend at least once. More than a third of them will go on to reoffend violently. When you look at cities that are suffering the brunt of our violent crime problem, places like Chicago, for example, where the average homicide or shooting suspect has 12 prior arrests, 20% have more than 10 prior arrests, almost 40% have at least one prior arrest for a gun or violent crime. You know, the, this, this is exactly what we would expect to see, what we can expect to see if we engaged in a sort of mass decarceration effort, right? The last 10 years, the United States has decarcerated by about 20%, maybe 25 if you include uh, uh, the, the COVID releases in 2020, and things are not looking up. Um, and I don't think that's, um, 
that's a, a coincidence. As for you know the systemic racism claim, you know it really is an unfortunate um, line of argument because it it is meant to imply racism, but it's not directed at anybody, right? They directed at the system because they know if they directed at somebody, some individual actor, that they'll defend themselves and they'll do so um, with success. So they claim that the system is racist, but the way that they do that is by ignoring an entire side of the ledger, right? So it is true that certain um, slices of certain communities do bear the brunt of the costs associated with policing and enforcement. Um, but the reality is, is that they also bear the brunt of the violent crime problem. And that's what brings police resources into communities. And when the criminal justice system achieves its ends, as stated by those at the system's helm, the result is a crime reduction. And who benefits from that crime reduction? It's mostly minority communities, low-income minority communities to be specific. And so, you know, just a couple of, of data examples. In New York City, every single year for that, that, that we have data on, a minimum, a minimum of 95% of all shooting victims are either black or Hispanic, almost all of them males. That they're nowhere near 95% uh, of the population, I can tell you that. From 1990 to 2014, across the entire country, we saw a massive decline in the homicide rate. That homicide decline added 0.14 years to the life expectancy of the average white man. It added 1.0 years to the average life expectancy of black men. The public health equivalent of that would be, you know, uh, I don't know, reduce, getting rid of heart disease. I mean, it, it is a major, major accomplishment that inured primarily to the benefit of low-income minority communities. And so when we talk about the unequal distribution of the costs associated with enforcement, we cannot have a rational and, and fair conversation about that if we're not also including the unequal distribution of the benefits associated with the operation of the criminal justice system. Kathy, anything you want to pick up on in terms of what Rafe just talked about. And if not, I want to pick up on one of the articles that you wrote that I really think is outstanding. We should talk about it. Uh, well, thank you so much for, uh, for having us and for highlighting this really important um, issue. So the, what I would add to what he spoke about is that uh, most of the crime victims, uh, murder families that I have represented would say exactly the same thing that he did, which is, um, you know, when you let people out of custody and you are not prosecuting them the way the law allows, you're letting them back into my communities. And um, it is, in fact, victims who are in communities of color, um, you know, who are surrounded by gang members, who feel intimidated and threatened by gang members, who say, I don't understand why you're not prosecuting these gang members, because when you don't do that, you let them back into my community, and my community is the one that suffers. So um, I'm seeing that anecdotally, certainly uh, with the victims that I've had the honor and privilege of representing. As you know, Kathy, because you were there and you were on our panel, this is the second two rogue prosecutor panels. The first one was in LA. It's available on the Heritage Foundation website. You were with three current sitting deputy DAs, uh, all of whom identified themselves as Democrats. Um, we interviewed and had an armchair discussion with the sheriff of LA, Alex Villanueva, a Democrat. Um, and I think that thing that Zach and I have learned during this <clears throat> two-year odyssey of writing about this, this is not a Democrat or Republican issue. This is not a left or right issue. This is not a blue state or red state issue. This is a law and order versus chaos issue. Uh, politics really has nothing to do with this. Um, you um, have done some great writing on, since you've retired as a DA, uh, because you couldn't really do it as much when you were a DA. One of the pieces that I thought was worth 
discussing today was entitled A Preventable Murder. Uh, and you start by saying, on January 8th, 41-year-old Alejandro Garcia was working the drive through at Taco Bell in South Los Angeles. He was shot to death by Jonathan Madden after Madden tried to pay with a counterfeit $20 bill. And you use this to talk about how this death was completely preventable, but for the fact that people have abandoned this idea of holding people pretrial because of this obsession with eliminating cash bail. Talk more about that. Um, <clears throat> well, um, so I wouldn't say people have. Certainly, I know uh, my former colleagues in the uh, Los Angeles County District Attorney's Office, um, if they were able to do their jobs, uh, would have made sure that he was in custody. But one person, and that would be George Gascon, um, had decided that uh, when he issued those policies, that um, he would take away prosecutors' ability to make sure that that defendant had been in custody. So, um, and uh, just to back up maybe a little bit, when uh, George Gascon took office and he took the oath to follow the laws, and at the same time, uh, apparently someone hit the send button on the email that issued the over 60 pages of policies that directed prosecutors to not follow the laws, those policies, of course, were written before he became DA, and uh, they were written... Uh, uh, by certain people who uh, probably were with the public defender's office at the time who he since has brought over to help him run the office. Um, some of those policies, though, uh, dealt with not filing legal enhancements and allegations. And uh, many of those allegations, of course, uh, should have been brought to bear in the case where this particular defendant had been arrested. So uh, that defendant who murdered Mr. Garcia um, he had a very long criminal history. He had been uh, arrested and put in prison several times for uh, various crimes, including robbery, burglary, um, narcotics, um, being a, uh, an ex-felon in possession of ammunition. And um, so he <clears throat> had gotten out of his latest prison stint, and uh, he picked up a case of being an ex-con with a gun. And... Um, to that charge, he should have had uh, some prior allegations added, uh, specifically uh, strike priors is what we call them in California, and uh, those should have been added, which would have added to his bail. So Gascon's policies of not allowing prosecutors to file enhancements or allegations doesn't just affect the sentence that they can receive, it also affects whether or not they, uh, the bail that they are given. And, of course, judges do not have a crystal ball to let them know whether or not a defendant has a prior criminal history. So what they look at is the charging document that is supposed to give them an indication of whether or not the defendant has a criminal history. And in this case, the charging document did not show that criminal history because Gascon's policies didn't allow those prior allegations to be added. So he uh, bailed out on a very low bail. <clears throat> He was out in the community. Uh, a few months later, he picked up a second case, and that case uh, was uh, sales of narcotics. So um, on that case, he should have also had the prior allegations added, but he also should have had an out-on-bail allegation added. So when you, are, when you have a current pending felony and you get picked up for another one, uh, the law allows for you to be charged with uh, being out on bail. But uh, because of Gascon's policies, that was not allowed to be charged. So once again, uh, the defendant was allowed to bail out on a very, very low bail. And uh, then after that is when he, of course, got another gun illegally. 
and uh, went to that Taco Bell and tried to pass a counterfeit $20 bill, and when that didn't happen, he shot Mr. Garcia with that gun. So, um, of course, had the law, had prosecutors been um, able to follow the law and follow the allegations that are legally available, uh, Mr. the defendant would likely have been in custody. But because of Gascon's policies, he was not. And uh, because of that, of course, Mr. Garcia was murdered and his family is left without um, a husband and a father. One of the fun uh, discussions Rafe and I have back and forth is he doesn't like our term rogue prosecutor. He prefers progressive. And he, he makes the argument uh, that, hey, the voters voted for these people. They knew what they were getting. They're not rogue. They're just doing what they were promised the voters were doing. And my retort to that is, no, uh, these people had a hidden agenda. They talked about reimagining prosecution and all this uh, silly talk, happy talk to make you think that they're going to be doing their job as DA, and then moments after they get elected, they unleash this massive document, which they've been writing for months, uh, and didn't show the public on their website when they were running for office. Uh, and so this is a, a fun-natured debate back and forth. But that document that was put together, which, by the way, Rachel Rollins had one put together, uh, which she issued the Rollins memo after she got elected Boston DA, 15 crimes you can commit in Boston, by the way. Larry Krasner did the same in Philadelphia. Um, we're using this example uh, as a way to show that this is a proxy, a, a, an approximation of what these rogue prosecutors do around the country. Gascon is at least forthright in what he's doing in terms of his directive. They have disastrous effects. Um, Rafe, what is your thought as you hear Kathy give an actual case where the hiding of this person's criminal background to the judge uh, has resulted in the murder of this poor man who was a father and married man? Unfortunately, it's not surprising. I mean, you know, I've been writing on this beat for the better part of a decade, and um, it's something that I see a lot, unfortunately. I mean, one of the, the stories that really inspired me to, to write the book that I, that I have coming out is a story out of Chicago in 2019. Um, young woman named Brittany Hill was uh, standing outside of her home holding her one-year-old daughter when a car rolled up and opened fire on the group that she was with. Uh, she turned to shield her daughter and tried to get away. She got about maybe 10 feet before collapsing while her daughter still clinged to her chest. Um, and she, she bled out and she died. And um, the whole shooting was caught on video. It was uh, caught by a Chicago Police Department security camera that had been put in the Austin neighborhood on the city's west side. And um, because it was caught on camera, they were able to make an arrest relatively uh, in relative short order. And one of the gentlemen who was arrested and charged with murder in that case, a guy named Michael Washington, who had nine prior felony convictions, including one for second degree murder and was out on parole at the time. Uh, the other alleged shooter had multiple prior arrests and was out on probation uh, for a gun charge. So, you know, this is this is not a, a rare occurrence, at least not an occurrence that's as rare as, as all of us in this room would like. And it just goes to show what the potential consequences are and why it's so important to understand the incapacitation benefits of incarceration. A, a lot of people talk about incarceration's failure to rehabilitate and, you know, those failures are certainly well documented, but that's not the only penological end served by incarceration. It's not the most important one. 
When you take a bad actor out of the community, you are sparing that community from the harm that would otherwise be done. And for the average prisoner in the United States, we're abating about eight index felonies for every year that they are in prison. Those are just index felonies. It's not counting misdemeanors and other small kind of offenses um, or other felonies Explain outside. Explain what an group. index felony is. So an, an index felony is one of the eight uh, offenses that are systematically tracked by the FBI and thought to be you know, sort of proxies for crime more generally. So they include murder and manslaughter, aggravated assault, robbery, burglary, arson, um, grand larceny, grand larceny, auto, um, and sexual assault and rape. Um, so, so, you know, it, it really is, I think, incumbent on the reform movement to have a good answer to the question of what do we do when it turns out that somebody you turn loose goes ahead and re-offends re and re-victimizes uh, the community? How do, you, how do you atone for that? In my opinion, there's, there's really no answer to that question, which is why it's so important to actually do your job and make sure that these people are taken off the street for significant periods of time. And that includes using all of the tools in the tool chest, like sentencing enhancements, um, which these prosecutors are skewing systematically because they don't like it, because it makes them uncomfortable. Um, but the reality is that they would never dare let their children walk through some of the neighborhoods where this violence is concentrated at night. And it's very, very concentrated. In every city in America, less than 5% of street segments are going to see about 50% of all crime. Right? About 2% of U.S. counties every year see about 50% of all murders. The vast majority of the United States is as safe as any safe place in the world. What we have are concentrated pockets of violence that have levels of violence that are, are, are unimaginable for most people in the United States. And, you know, we just do an incredible disservice to those communities when we fail to realize the benefits of incapacitation through incarceration. Kathy, um, I think one of the uh, myths that the rogue prosecutor movement has been peddling and assuming that because people in the public don't pay attention to this like we do, that people will buy is that prosecution equates jail. In other words, everyone who gets prosecuted goes to jail. You and I were baby prosecutors maybe a few decades ago. We did misdemeanors. We did our rotation through misdemeanors. Um, and you have friends, lots, in the office still, the largest DA office in the country. Um, most people who get prosecuted for misdemeanors don't spend any time in jail. Um, and so I think we need to, as real reformers, distinguish between prosecution that results in incarceration for the serious people and handling misdemeanors that result in accountability because that then can bring them into the criminal justice system to give them the right incentives to do the right thing, but also sometimes the services they might need to get their right their life on the right path. Can you talk to that, please? Uh, certainly. So um, some of the misdemeanors that uh, Mr. Gascon has announced that he won't uh, prosecute include um, driving with a suspended license. So you can have your license suspended because you have a driving under the influence or because you didn't, you know, you have too many tickets and that kind of thing, right? So when you are prosecuted for having a suspended license, um, hopefully you will go ahead and fix that and get a current license uh, and make sure that you've paid your fines and done your classes and those kinds of things that you need so that you will be a safe driver because of course we all want to have safe drivers on the road. 
but um, in Los Angeles County, people know now that uh, there won't they won't be prosecuted for driving with a suspended license. So they don't really have any incentive to make sure that they take the classes that they need, that they um, you know, to pay their fines, that they, they don't have to be worried about, oh my gosh, if I get another speeding ticket, my license is going to be suspended because, well, so so what? <laughs> so, um, and uh, certainly in misdemeanor court, which is what you're talking about, many people, um, when they come in for low-level um, offenses, they have services that are then available to them. And this is one of the things that um, is available, certainly for narcotics cases, is that they can go to drug court, they can go to um, various drug programs and they can hopefully try to get sober and I've heard from many many people that um, you know what saved their life is being forced to do that uh, and when you take away that incentive for people to try to um, get their life in order because they know if they don't that they're facing some kind of criminal criminal uh, repercussion um, then they don't have as much incentive to go ahead and try to um, you know take care of those things Could I just add one thing to that, which is that not only is jail not a likely um, outcome of a misdemeanor prosecution, it's also not a likely outcome of a felony prosecution. So the Department of Justice uh, did studies of state-level prosecutions all throughout the first decade of the 2000s, and every single year that one of those studies came out, it showed that right around 40% of all state felony convictions result in a post-conviction prison sentence. So 60% of the time, even when you're getting a felony conviction, you're that person's either getting out with time served in pretrial detention or they're getting out on probation. So it, it's not even the case that the vast majority of the most serious kinds of crimes that, that we prosecute when a conviction is, is uh, secured, that that person's going to prison. One of the great uh, statistics that Kevin Sabet, uh, who was on in the Clinton uh, Office of National Drug Control Policy, said in one of his books about marijuana uh, and marijuana policy is that the average, well, first off, there's hardly anybody in prison for simple possession of marijuana. And we're talking about less than 1%. Uh, and the ones that are in prison for possession of marijuana had on average 114 pounds of marijuana in their possession. So clearly this is not Cheech and Chong. <clears throat> this isn't your college roommate pothead. This is a distributor who clearly got uh, charges knocked down to simple possession. Uh, and they probably had to cooperate uh, and provide information to, uh, on who they were working with. Um, Rafe, um, there's, uh, it's sort of ironic that you heard Rich Donahue and others in the previous panel talk about, you know, the spike in crime was around 1992. There were 2,000 plus murders alone in New York City, and now we're at historic lows for violent crime, yet the rogue prosecutor system talks about mass incarceration. But I did some number crunching. Uh, when you look at the number of murders across the United States last year, it was think over 30,000, that's more than the entire European continent. So what are we supposed to do if we don't incarcerate violent criminals? What, what, what's the solution that the rogue prosecutors propose? Well, uh, there is no solution, right? To them, incarceration is a net negative in all cases, and so decarceration is a public policy <coughs> to itself. Um, and the way that they make this argument is essentially by misreading a body of still developing research um, that shows that in some cases, incarceration can be criminogenic, which means that 
the the experience of being incarcerated can lead someone to commit more crimes than they otherwise would have committed had they been diverted from that kind of system. And there is some research uh, showing that this is the case as to certain types of offenders. But when you dig into those studies that they latch onto for dear life, what you find is that those studies can never be applied to the general prison population in the United States or the general jail population in the United States. So you know, the best of those studies are using um, uh, uh, natural experiments or quasi-natural experiments to try and assess what the impact of incarceration is going to be. Now, in the United States, judges, prosecutors all have discretion. Uh, so when someone is spared incarceration, they're usually spared incarceration for a good reason. When someone is treated to incarceration, they are treated to incarceration for a good reason. That decision is almost never random. So if you want to study the effect of incarceration, you have to find a way in which whether whether someone is exposed to the treatment is random, right? So the way that they do that is they'll look at um, random judge assignment or random assignment to a prosecutor. Basically, what they'll do is they'll categorize certain judges or prosecutors as lenient, others as as harsher, and they'll look at what's called the marginal offender, the person who's engaged in conduct and who has a criminal history, such that whether to incarcerate them is basically a coin flip. Right? And they look at the outcomes for those individuals. And for those individuals, some studies have found that exposure to incarceration results in higher reoffending rates that outweigh the incapacitation benefit for the short term of incarceration. But that literature applies only to the marginal offender. And I don't think anyone in this room is against the idea of diverting the first time drug offender away from the system. I don't think anyone in this room is against the idea of sparing someone incarceration who has no criminal history, who made you know one mistake. But the idea that we can just read those studies onto uh, the broader prison population in the United States, which is constituted primarily by uh, people who have committed serious violent crimes and who have very very lengthy criminal histories, well, that's just wrong. Um, and, and so, you know, this, this is my, my major beef with the progressive prosecutor movement, which is that they don't have an alternative solution. There is no alternative system that can provide the same kind of public safety benefits that the incarceration of high-rate and high-risk offenders provides communities every single day in this country. Kathy, do you want to pick up on something? You seem to be nodding. <laughs> well, um, what I would say is that... Um, you know, my piece in all of this is that uh, when I represent victims, of course, what I hear from them is the, the trauma and the re-trauma that comes when they realize that prosecutors are not going to be following the law, essentially. And um, victims, uh, and, and again, I can, I can really only speak uh, to victims' rights in California, although I know many other states, you know, have, uh, have similar um, statutes or uh, provisions in their constitution. But in California... Um, victims' rights starts out by saying, in order to preserve and protect a victim's right to justice and due process, and um, and then there are 17 enumerated rights in California that victims have in our Constitution. But victims, uh, first and foremost, at least the victims that I've had the honor and privilege of representing, and these are, of course, are murder victims' families, they do want justice. And justice to them does not mean that you just say to someone, oh, we'll say you're sorry, and then you can get out of jail. Justice means that that person who took their loved one's life, where they will now be serving a life sentence without their father, their husband, their son, their daughter, um, that that person um, should be, you know, held accountable. And um, unfortunately, um, 
for many of these prosecutors, and I'm talking right now about Gascon and you know other people who um, agree with what he is doing. Um, they don't. They seem to think that victims are just going to be okay with someone getting out of custody and not really having to do much time. They seem to think that victims are going to be okay with not having the law followed. They seem to think that victims are going to be fine with not charging a gang enhancement when the whole reason that their loved one is now dead is because it was a gang initiation. And victims, at least I can tell you the ones that I've spoken to, are not okay with that. They are not okay at all. They are really mad. And um, they certainly want to make sure that their elected district attorney knows that they are not okay with the policies that he has enacted. Andrew Lara is a Democrat. He is on the Pico Rivera City Council. I had the privilege of spending some time with him before our rogue prosecutor panel in L.A. a few weeks ago. He went on the record to talk about uh, the effect of George Gascon's policies. And one of the things he said, Kathy, that I'd like you to pick up on is he said, you know, when I saw Beverly Hills and some of these really swanky places in L.A. that have incorporated cities vote no confidence against Gascon, and there are dozens of cities now across L.A. that have voted no confidence against him, Andrew said, where do you think these criminals who he's letting out are going to go? They're not going to go to Beverly Hills. They're going to come back to my community, and they're going to terrorize my community. And I think that's probably the reason there's been 415,000 people who've signed their name on this recall effort, uh, and it's not being driven by the right wing. It's being driven by people who are affected the most in these cities. And when they see Gascon yell at a murder victim's family and calling her uneducated on camera, and prohibiting his own DAs from attending parole hearings such that the sheriff is sending his own sheriff's deputies up there to represent the people and the victim, this is resonating with folks. Tell us a typical type of case that you represent. What, somebody comes to you without naming a case and they want you to do what for them? And what do you do for them? Um, so I am uh privileged to work with uh, several other former prosecutors, and we all are doing this pro bono. Um, so when I or one of the others gets a call, it's typically a victim who says, um, and again, usually a murder case, um, you know, my, my son was murdered. And um, the prosecutor is telling me that they are not going to be, you know, filing the gang allegation, that they're, you know, that they're not filing the, this allegation, um, that they, and they're doing it because of Gascon's policies. So um, when Gascon first came in um, and prosecutors were being ordered to dismiss allegations, um, myself and these other former DAs were able to go to court to say to judges, um, you know, we're here to represent the victim and we're asking you to not go along with what the prosecutor is asking because uh, to do that, at least in California, you would have to make a finding that it was in the furtherance of justice. And there is no furtherance of justice in this particular case. So because of that, we're asking you to not follow what the DA is asking. But in new cases that are coming, victims don't really have that same ability. So all that we're able to say then is, um, yes, we understand how upsetting it is. The one uh, right that they have under our victims' rights law in California is that they have a right to reasonably confer. So what we will say is, you know, if you want to try to speak with people in the office who might have the ability to change that decision, I can help you in trying to set that up. But it's also very important to manage victims' expectations to say, 
um, please know that even if we do set that up, it's not likely that they will um, change their mind, but I understand that for you as a mother of a murdered son, you need to know that you've done everything you can to make sure that your voice is heard and that you're representing your son and trying to get justice for your son. So even though you may know that we may not get what you want, um, I am happy to help you in trying to assert your rights and make sure that you have an opportunity to speak with someone in the DA's office and ask them those questions. One of the many despicable arguments uh, that the rogue prosecutor movement and their supporters say is that police across the country are on uh, the rampage and killing unarmed black men every day. Um, we saw recently in a Senate confirmation hearing uh, with the district court judge nominee, one of the senators taking this person to task <coughs> for this position that she took prior to being a nominee. Um, your dad was a retired New York uh, City police officer, detective. Um, he lost two partners during uh, that time. Um, you also, in our talk before today, talked about a 2018 study of one million calls for police in three states. Try to tie those together and share that with us. Yeah, I mean, I, I do think it's important to understand that part of what gave the modern progressive prosecutor movement legs was the idea that they could do something about controversial police killings, right? So in 2014, you had the death of Michael Brown. Um, in shortly thereafter, Robert McCullough, the, the multi-time incumbent uh, DA in, in uh, St. Louis County, was challenged by Wesley Bell. And that, that whole uh, campaign was sort of centered around the Michael Brown case, this idea that we you know, needed progressive prosecutors not just to uh, address mass incarceration, but also to hold police officers accountable. And this, this narrative that informs this movement is, is really, really pernicious and, and just wrong. So you know, uh, the idea that police are killing unarmed black men on a daily basis is just patently false. Every year, you're talking about maybe 14 to 15 cases. Uh, of unarmed black men being shot by police. Also, you know, uh, it may be uncomfortable for some to confront this reality, but it is a reality nonetheless. The fact that somebody is unarmed does not necessarily mean that they are not a candidate for the use of deadly force. And you mentioned uh, the two partners that my father lost in the line of duty, um, and I think that case is, is a really good example of this. So um, in 2004, two New York City police detectives, Patrick Rafferty and Bobby Parker, uh, tried to effect an arrest on a man who decided he didn't want to go to jail, and he fought. He was able to get Bobby's gun, shoot Bobby in the chest, and then exchange fire with Pat, who he also killed after being wounded. Um, the idea that somebody is unarmed and therefore not a danger is just not real. Um, police officers have on their person deadly weapons that can and often do get used against them, um, and they have every right to defend themselves against that. Now, with respect to you know the, the, the general rate of police use of force, it's just not a very common outcome. The vast majority of interactions that police have do not result in deadly force at all. So I, I, I did a, a law review article for the Federalist Society Review a couple years ago, and I looked at uh, um, uh, cases in 2018, and I, I estimated that police officers fired their guns a little over 3,000 times that year. Um, but they also affected 10.5 million arrests. So you know, if you look at the percentage of arrests in which police officers are using deadly force, it's well under uh, you know, one, it's like 0.03%. 
Now, there was another study that you mentioned in 2018 that looked at a million calls for service across three police departments, one in North Carolina, one in Arizona, and one in Louisiana. Those calls for service resulted in 114,000 criminal arrests. In that whole data set, only one fatal police shooting was captured. And in less than 1% of all of those arrests, more than 99% of all of those arrests, no force was used whatsoever. And in 98% of the cases in which force was used, doctors who were part of the study and reviewed the medical records of the suspects found that either no or mild injury was suffered, meaning in less than 2% of those cases in which force was used was there a major injury sustained. Uh, by the suspect. The reality is, is that police officers are incredibly professional and incredibly restrained and do their job with a very, very high rate of success. And the single biggest predictor of whether or not police are going to use force is suspect behavior. And that's just something people don't want to talk about. Well, let's talk about that then. Um, one of the things that the rogue prosecutors are quite proud of, uh, they published this in their <coughs> crimes they won't prosecute, is resisting arrest. Um, and, of course, when you say you're not going to do, prosecute a crime, you're going to get more of that crime. If you say you're not going to prosecute turnstile jumping, you're not going to prosecute possession with intent to distribute, you're not going to prosecute thefts, you're going to get more of those. Um, one of the things we've said, and I want to get your reaction, both of you, to this, is that when you add in the toxic trio of defund the police or demoralize the police, and you add in the rogue prosecutors, you have a horrible combination that has resulted in low police morale, people leaving the force, hard time recruiting, um, and rising crime. Um, what about this um, idea of not prosecuting, resisting arrest? What message does that send uh, to folks in the community? Well, I think it sends a message that you have an ally in the government to criminals. Um, and it, it emboldens them. And it, I also think it's really important to understand that these policies about resisting arrest are being promulgated in, con, in, in conjunction with uh, signals that those prosecutors are sending to police officers saying that we, we will most certainly prosecute you if you use too much force in our opinion. So it's not just, hey, we're not going to prosecute you for resisting, but hey, if you put your knee on this guy's back, as in New York City where they passed the diaphragm bill, we are going to criminally prosecute you and we are going to make your life uncomfortable. So what that does is, is it's a twofold effect, and it's exactly as you described. It emboldens criminals and demoralizes police and disincentivizes them from engaging. And what you see is that in the areas where police officers have the most discretion, that's where you see the declines in activity. Um, and that's not what you want. What you want are police to be eyes on the street and actually try and find crimes themselves and not just respond to 911 calls. Um, and, and when you have that kind of situation, you, you get what we have now, which is rising crime that's, again, incredibly concentrated, both demographically and geographically, and, and it harms the most vulnerable communities across the country. Kathy? Um, well, what I would say is that is exactly what is the problem with these blanket policies that um, certainly that George Gascon has issued, which is you know, we're not prosecuting misdemeanor uh, resisting arrest. And so, you know, there may well be uh, one or two or three cases when you look at the facts and the circumstances and all of that, you would use your discretion to not prosecute. But when you issue these blanket policies that say we will never prosecute, it absolutely um, does, I think, you know, it really hurts morale in uh, police departments, sheriff's departments. Um, and, you know, they put themselves on the, their lives on the line every day. 
and uh, they have a really difficult job to go into situations that are very, very dangerous. And when we are essentially as a district attorney's office saying, by the way, if someone, uh, you know, hurts you or fights you or won't comply with, you know, commands that you say legally, um, well, that's just kind of too bad and we're not going to do anything about it. I mean, it's, um, I would say it's a violation of their oath to uphold the law is what I would say. Um, one of the things that Aaron Nearly Cox said on the last uh, panel uh, uh, sort of echoed what Zach and I have been writing about, and that is imagine a different rogue prosecutor movement. And let's say it was littered throughout the U.S. attorney's offices around the country. And their uh, moving theory was that we're just not going to prosecute insider trading cases. We're just not going to do that. We're not going to prosecute bank robbery cases because the people who are robbing the banks clearly need the money. This is a quality of life thing. Um, or a, another pernicious rogue prosecutor movement. Like, uh, we don't think that sex between an adult and a juvenile is a crime. It's an act of love. It's an arm's length transaction. So we're just not going to prosecute those types of cases. We laugh, but there's no difference really between the failure to enforce the law evenly in the current system versus the hypothetical one that we're talking about. Um, here's the pushback, Rafe. They say data and science uh, support their approach. What do you say to that? Well, I, you know, I'll just piggyback on what I mentioned before about some of the studies that they rely on to make that claim, which is they don't actually show what they think those studies show. The data are very, very clear. The vast majority of people who are involved with the criminal justice system are not first-timers. The vast majority of people who are first-timers are usually spared any kind of meaningful sanction, which is exactly the right approach. People who are given sanctions, have been given multiple chances before, are extremely likely to go ahead and reoffend again. And you know, the, the studies that they rely on are looking at marginal offenders. Again, it's really, really important for you guys to understand that the decision about whether or not to prosecute or incarcerate is not a random decision. These decision makers are taking into account someone's criminal history, the nature of the offense, um, you know, the, 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 um, the, the likelihood that the sanction is going to prevent them from, from committing another crime, their risk to the community. When, we, when, when you're trying to build out an econometric analysis of the effect of incarceration, you have to narrow it to a circumstance in which the treatment exposure is random. So, again, you're looking at a population for whom the question of whether to incarcerate them is essentially a coin flip, and it's going to come down to whether or not the prosecutor has a tendency to be more lenient or, or uh, uh, stricter, and whether or not the judge has a tendency to be more lenient or stricter. This is not the population uh, that is currently uh, um, represented in our prisons, in our jails, um, and among those that are, are getting the most attention from local police officers. Well, we're almost out of time, um, and I think we could carry on this conversation for a lot longer. All of our research uh, is available on one web page. Uh, if you go to heritage.org uh, and you look at rogue prosecutors, all of our research, our blog series on the various rogue prosecutors are out there. Uh, Rafe's book is coming out this summer. We're looking forward to reading that. Uh, but I want to uh, give the last word to you two uh, for any concluding thoughts, and I'll start first. Uh, as a gentleman would with the lady. Uh, well, I just, uh, I'm grateful again, you know, that this is a topic that is being looked at. And I can say that, um, 
you know, on behalf of the, the victims that I'm now uh, fortunate enough to, to know and to represent and to know their stories, um, it's so incredibly important that uh, prosecutors, elected prosecutors out there understand that when you initiate these kinds of policies, it is devastating for crime victims. They feel as though they're being re-traumatized, um, not just by having had someone they love murder, but they're now being traumatized again because they feel that they're not getting justice and due process in the criminal justice system, and they deserve that. Rafe? Yeah, I mean, what, the only other thing I'd, I'd add to is that when the criminal justice system is seen as not doing its job, what that's going to encourage is for people in the community to take justice into their own hands, and that's not what you want to see. You don't want to see um, street beefs getting resolved on sidewalks and in parking lots and in schoolyards. You want the government to do its job because that gives people the confidence that they need to go out and you know act in the world engage in economic transactions uh, without having to feel like they need to take these steps uh, to use violence to um, respond to what they see as slights. And so, you know, the, the only other thing, too, is that, you know, it, again, it's, it's the most vulnerable communities in America that are going to suffer the most um, of the downside risk associated with the pro pros progressive prosecutor policies. Decarceration, depolicing, it's not going to change daily life in, you know, the sort of super zip codes uh, around the United States, right? The vast majority of, of people are, are not going to see crime go up in their communities. The places where things are going to change day to day are the places like East Harlem, the west side of Chicago, um, south central L.A., where you have the biggest concentration of gang violence, the biggest concentration of crime, and, you know, those communities deserve better. Please join me in thanking our panelists.